Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant Joe Hooper. Hooper, the time we're going to talk about, is serving with Delta Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 501st Infantry, as part of the 101st Airborne Division in Vietnam during a time period, a series of battles known as the Tet Offensive. Now, Hooper is one of the most decorated veterans of the Vietnam War, and and there's a lot to his story. We're going to zero in on his Medal of Honor citation, but this is a man who, by the time his career ends, will be awarded a Medal of Honor, two Silver Stars, six Bronze Stars, and eight Purple Hearts. Wounded all the time in Vietnam, so heck of a story. By itself. I mean, there, there's stories about Joe Hooper that don't tie to this Medal of Honor citation, but that's what we're going to zero in on on today. So to back out and talk Vietnam at a high level, it's going to be a conflict between the communist-backed North Vietnamese government and the democratic Western-backed South Vietnam. Close-ish. We've talked about that before. It's not a mirror image of what. Maybe the United States and, and our Western allies want a democracy to look like, but it's not communist. So that means they're a friend of ours at this time in history. Uh, North Vietnam is, is pretty closely aligned with the Soviet Union as well as China. And they get a lot of support from those countries in, in North Korea. North Korea has not traditionally been in a position to really overtly provide um, support as much as the Soviet Union and China has been. But nonetheless, Vietnam is going to be an area, it's going to be a civil war taking part between the North and the South, and it's going to involve countries from around the world for a long period of time. The French will be there in the 50s. The United States will get involved pretty quickly in the 60s. And we have kind of a bell curve of involvement. We'll have just a few advisors on the ground, dozens or fewer, at the start and at the very end. And then right in the middle, 1967, 1968, we're going to be um, in the... I think close to 600,000 troops on the ground at any given point. So the U.S. involvement will will shift throughout. This window during the Tet Offensive is going to be during one of those peak windows of U.S. involvement, or at least direct U.S. involvement. In Vietnam, this was a counterinsurgency fight. And in retrospect, I don't know how much we recognized that at the time. The United States hasn't, you know, we're coming off, think of what we're coming off of as a country. We're, we're, when we look at our military history, we're coming from World War I, a, a traditional conventional fight in World War II. There's, there's pieces you can pull from World War II for any conflict, but again, a very traditional fight. We're, we're fighting countries, even the Korean War. We're, we're still fighting a very conventional war. The U.S. has had involvement in counterinsurgency operations, and we, of course, can read about that happening elsewhere. And in Vietnam specifically, we probably could have done a little more research about the French involvement there before we arrived. But nonetheless, it, it, it really feels like we're trying to force a type of warfare that isn't there. And that happens when one side makes that decision. So the North Vietnamese and their Viet Cong supporters, the Viet Cong, remember, are going to be the um, South Vietnamese citizens that support North Vietnam. 
or North Vietnamese that aren't in uniform, aren't tied to um, conventional North Vietnamese army units. So think of it as a guerrilla force. But any of these very easily move back and forth between the two countries because the two countries were one country. So they're split up by families, split up um, areas that used to, like the American Civil War, it's very easy to move back and forth across the lines and blend in. So one of the challenges in Vietnam is North Vietnam pretty quickly realizes they're not going to win a head-to-head conventional fight with the U.S. military. Throughout the war, we're bombing North Vietnam early and often, devastating bombing. We have more firepower. We have a larger population. One thing that we don't have and that North Vietnam is really counting on, and in retrospect, I think was a pretty smart strategy, was they didn't know if we had the staying power. How many casualties would the United States sustain before we said enough? And they're banking that they can sustain more, maybe proportionally, not, not a direct number. But that was both how North Vietnam and the United States looked at it. But we had very different views. The way the United States is judging success in this war at this time is going to be very heavily tied to something known as body count. And that's going to be how many bodies are left in the battlefield after an engagement. How many people did we kill? The idea behind that is North Vietnam's not that big. If we continue to kill their forces at this rapid pace, we've got these high-tech bombers. We've got Marines with tanks on the ground. We've got army snipers roaming the bush. Like We're knocking out North Vietnamese and Viet Cong soldiers left and right. How many can they reinforce? How, how, long can they go sustaining those losses before they can't fill their ranks anymore? And our view, the United States, is we can we can stack up these bodies so quickly that they're not going to be able to continue to fight. That's our view. The North Vietnamese view is they don't know how many Americans they have to kill to get us to leave the country, but they don't have to kill all of us. It's. The, I think they understood better than we did that it was a war of perception and the perception was happening back in the continental United States. So in 1967, we've been, been looking at these body count numbers for a little while and they're stacking up. They're getting pretty high. And there's been a lot of controversy around that after the fact, how they may have been inflated um, potentially at every level, which which you know how that would think of it like a game of telephone. If one person says two, but his superior needs to see three, he says three and all of a sudden gets up the chain that two turns in nine. That's not a big deal if it happens once, but if that happens in every engagement, your estimates on enemy killed are way off. And for what it's worth throughout history, everybody gets that wrong. There is not, it is rare to find a battle where the victor, especially, well, either side can say, this is how many of the enemy we killed that really matches up well with the enemy number. It happens today in fights in Afghanistan and Iraq. You'll regularly hear uh, there, there's major battles in Afghanistan where we have cited the, the official records that we killed 200 Taliban fighters. But afterwards, we find fewer than 10 bodies in the battlefield. It's just these numbers rarely sink like you think they're going to. So by 1967, we've been going off these body count numbers for a while. The United States starts to see, we, we, we think just based off these numbers, they've got to be getting towards their end, the end of the line 
So President Johnson is becoming optimistic. General Westmoreland is optimistic. They think the end is in sight. In fact, they say that in 1967. Good news, the end is finally in sight. They Westmoreland kind of calls out the Vietnamese and, and says, we, we'd love for them to come hit us. We're ready for a fight. On the other side, you have the North Vietnamese that are going to take a gamble in 1968. That gamble is going to end up being known as the Tet Offensive. It's going to be a major offensive operation that hasn't really been seen to that scale in the Vietnam War. And the idea in a few sentences, it's a pretty complex operation. So we're going to sum it up as best we can is the idea is that South Vietnam doesn't like the Americans any more than North Vietnam does. They're just putting up with us, us and, and the South Vietnamese, South Vietnamese forces. So if they can take and hold key areas in some of these major population centers, like radio center, radio, um, broadcasting buildings and, and operations and maybe knock out a government building and take over an airfield, not necessarily overrun an entire city, but knock out strategic areas that there will be a popular uprising in South Vietnam and North Vietnamese soldiers can march in and, and fill in that gap as the Americans are being kicked out by the citizens. So it's not a crazy concept. It just, it didn't match facts on the ground, which is okay because what the United States was planning didn't match facts on the ground either. That's just kind of the nature of, of warfare. So they're going to launch, North Vietnam is going to launch an offensive all across the country focused on major population centers. This is, again, the theme in Vietnam is it's a war of the people. It's not, which kind of brings into question the U.S. strategy of body count. We're bombing people in the, you know, the central highlands that are away from towns, but we can't secure a population. And North Vietnam is focused on the population. You know, we're, we're, we're mixing signals, mixing goals here. But the Tet Offensive is going to be launched across the country on January 30th, 1968. January 30th and 31st, 1968. And in a, in a sense, they're going to try to just overwhelm the defenders. If they launch one attack on one city, we can reinforce. If they launch five attacks on five cities, we can probably reinforce. But what if they target 60 cities and towns and hamlets? What do we do then? or more. It's kind of the idea of the Tet Offensive. It's going to be a major problem for the United States because remember, we just, President Johnson was just recently on the news saying the end is in sight, the enemy is breaking, and then bam, in January of 1968, the largest offensive of the war kicks off. How is that enemy broken again? When they're when they're able to put together these numbers of, of upwards of 80,000 in phase one total over maybe maybe north of half a million involved in this fight, that's the enemy that's broken. It's hard to justify that. And it really comes back to really starts to shift. This is one of the major turning points in American perception of the war, uh, the Tet Offensive, because the United States is going to suffer pretty substantial casualties. During the Tet Offensive, Joe Hooper and his unit are in the city of Hue. It's spelled H-U-E. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. But this is going to be one of the objectives from North Vietnam, one of the North Vietnamese objectives. And it's an interesting spot. Most of the cities and towns, to back up a little bit, the Tet Offensive was a tactical failure on the part of the North Vietnamese. They lost a lot of soldiers. They lost a lot more than the United States and South Vietnam did. But if we talk strategic objectives, it may have been something that helped them to um, succeed down the road in the war because of what it did to American, 
perceptions. But for the most part across the country, we, we push back and retake all of these towns within a couple weeks, sometimes within a couple hours. Uh, Hue is not one of those places. They dig in in Hue. They get there a little bit before they, they get there with enough time before reinforcements show up to where the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong are able to kind of fortify their positions and they cause pretty substantial casualties as the U.S. and South Vietnamese forces try to take it back. Enter the one-man wrecking crew of Sergeant Joe Hooper. So his unit is moving towards the uh, moving towards an enemy position, and they're across a little creek, little streams. This is about twenty feet wide. Anyways, as they get there, their unit, his unit, becomes pinned down. But you know, it's not like a machine gun pins down a company of one hundred unless that company isn't dispersed very well. Usually, they'll pin down a certain element, and, and that's what happened here. The bulk of the unit gets pinned down. Hooper's not in that part of the element, so. He gets up, charges across this stream, river, creek, 20 feet, whatever you want to call it, directly into the five enemy bunkers, knocking every one of them out. Bam. That by itself, and this, how many times does this happen when we talk about Medal of Honor citations? Like that by itself is right up there and something that he could be um, awarded this medal for. But of course, it doesn't stop there. It's a seven hour fight, and this is the first of many many crazy things he does. Now I say it's a seven hour fight because I'm going to rattle through some of these things that he does, but it's important to recognize that it's not back to back to back. So you can picture this happening in just a 15 minute window, but the reality is that it's a long drawn out process that is emotionally taxing. It's, it's physically demanding. His heart rate wouldn't have slowed down at all for seven hours or more. It's just, Go, 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 go all day. So just took out five bunkers. Now throughout the battle, he's not going to stop pulling his guys off the battlefield when they're wounded. And doing that, at one point, he becomes pretty severely wounded right away. Again, he's cleared five enemy bunkers. Now he's severely wounded. But this is just the start. From there, he identifies three more enemy bunkers, moves out, clears those three, destroys the three enemy positions. After he does that, he notices that there's an army chaplain that is being attacked by a group of North Vietnamese soldiers. Why there's an army chaplain that close to the front lines of a unit pressing the attack, I don't know. At this point, it doesn't seem like the best spot for him, but he's there. Nonetheless, Hooper runs over, kills two enemy soldiers to, um, to save the chaplain from, from being killed. And then sees a series of fighting positions in buildings nearby. So... Doing what he does, he charges into the buildings and destroys those three enemy fighting positions. At this point, he's running low on ammunition. Makes sense. He starts to move back towards friendly lines to resupply and, and, and refit and maybe get some water and take a breather if you can. This fight's still raging. As he's doing that, a North Vietnamese soldier jumps out Point blank, weapon in, weapon pointed right at Hooper, pulls the trigger, click. It's a misfire. It, it, you know what comes to mind is that scene in Saving Private Ryan, for anybody that's seen that, where the two, the German and the American are standing face to face, and they both pull the trigger and click, and, and they're staring at each other. What's going to happen? Well, what happens in the heat of the moment is the North Vietnamese soldier turns and runs. Hooper runs, pulls his bayonet, 
catches the man, kills him. Gets back to his unit, resupplies, still refusing medical treatment because the fight is still raging and his guys are still out there needing help, needing assistance. And his unit once more is pinned down by a series of enemy positions. This time it's a, a group of four enemy bunkers that are strung together with a trench system. So Hooper grabs a bag of grenades, jumps into that enemy trench system, and runs the length of it, lobbing grenades as he goes into the individual bunkers. Destroys all four. Four more enemy bunkers destroyed by Hooper on February 21st, 1968. He's not done. There is a wounded soldier in an open field that he has to go get, but he's out of ammunition. And as he gets ready to cross the field to go get this guy, one of his buddies says, Hey, at least take this pistol. So he gives him the pistol. Hooper turns around and two or three steps later, an enemy soldier steps out right in front of him. Hooper instinctively, bam, shoots and kills the NBA soldier. Thank God he had that pistol that he wasn't going to take with him. Right. Grabs the wounded soldier, pulls him back to safety and still won't, seek medical aid for himself. Night comes, and by the next morning, Hooper has passed out from blood loss. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't like a minor shrapnel wound. Now, there were shrapnel wounds on top of, of everything else, but he's seriously wounded. Now that he's passed out from blood loss, he can't fight back, and his guys evacuate him like he probably should have been earlier or, or certainly could have been earlier. So he is medically evacuated, uh, comes back home, and in, or I think it's in 1969, he's awarded the Medal of Honor by President Nixon. Hooper would commission, at that point he was a staff sergeant, so he was promoted from sergeant to staff sergeant, receives the Medal of Honor, um, commissions as an officer in the Army, eventually gets promoted to captain and exits service in 1978. Unfortunately, at the age of 40, Hooper would pass away early um, in 1979, just a year after he left the service for good. But this is it's just a wild story. Sergeant Joe Hooper, the one-man wrecking crew, one of the most decorated soldiers of the Vietnam War with a Medal of Honor, two Silver Stars, six Bronze Stars, eight Purple Hearts, just wreaking havoc on North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces during the Tet Offensive in 1968. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.